Hello, friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences. We are the ladies of the Catholic Association, bringing you witty and charming in-depth conversation on the topics that matter to you with the leading thinkers and movers of our time. Conversations with Consequences is part of the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Of course, our radio show is always a podcast, and you can listen by going to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts, or you can just go directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. As always on Conversations with Consequences, we have a great show lined up for you this week. We're going to start with Natasha Howe. She's the producer of the new film, Fatima, the movie. It'll be available for everyone to watch later on this month, but I was able to catch an advance screening here in Miami. Then we are happy to have Father David Guffey, National Director of Family Theater Productions here. He's the executive producer of Pray, the story of Patrick Payton. That is a documentary becoming available early October. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. A hundred years ago in 1917, three peasant children in Portugal were able to see Our Lady Fatima, who came to visit. She made a visitation, and with that, she pretty much changed the world for many, many people. Recently, a movie was made called Fatima, and I was able to go and see an advanced screening, and I've asked the producer of the movie, Natasha House, to come on and talk with us and tell us all about it. So, Natasha, welcome to Conversations with Consequences. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here talking to you. So, Natasha, I think it was three weeks ago that my sister-in-law and I loaded our minivan with little girls, and we went to Dolphin Stadium here in Miami, and we went to a drive-in situation. I hadn't been to a drive-in since I was a little girl. We went to the drive-in. We we drove right onto the stadium itself where the football players play, and of course, the children were so excited. They'd never seen anything like that, and it was a lovely event. They had screens up high all along the, I guess, where people watch football when they go to football. And it was just wonderful. It was a great event. Children were very moved by the movie. I was very moved. On the way home, we all said the rosary together because the children said we should say the rosary. And it was a wonderful experience. So I thank you for this movie that already had a great impact on my family. I'm so pleased to hear your your story of your experience at, my, at the Miami Drive-In. Um, this is, in fact, yes, a series of advanced screenings that we are conducting as you know, for promotion for the movie in advance of its official release, which is now August the 28th in theaters and on premium VOD. So we can actually rent the movie at home now as well. Um, and we have, we're actually going into nine different cities throughout the United States to, uh, to actually showcase the film for key Catholic influencers who are then able to go out and disseminate and spread the message of the film and to share their experiences of actually watching the movie in this very novel way. So, yes, obviously we've had to respond um, to the current social condition and climate, and we decided to create this series of pop-up movie drive-ins. So we actually go into different major cities throughout the U.S. and often partner with the Archdiocese, sometimes actually screening on, on church land in the parking lots, and sometimes then also partnering with some of the larger institutions and organizations of that city, such as at Miami Dolphin Stadium. We actually uh, conducted one at the L.A. Palladium. Uh, that was last Tuesday, and also then, sorry, that was last uh, Saturday, and then on Tuesday we actually did one in, it was a private um, sort of health spa, uh, it's Simi Valley at the Hummingbird Nest Ranch, and that was 
just spectacular. So it was a beautiful setting and we actually put up a, a screen that was four times the size of the screen that we usually put up. And, and we have these wonderful pre-shows that showcases the singing nuns. And uh, obviously we, we actually, we did work with Andrea Bocelli, uh, who sings the, the original song on the Fatima movie. And so we have making of uh, videos showing him actually in the production of that that soundtrack and and so we have this lovely pre-show screening and before in advance of actually showing the screening showing the, the screening of the movie an advanced screening so it's like a little mini premiere it's their private events uh it's invitation only until we actually release um and so far I mean, we've, we've been getting between 80 to 150 cars that actually come through to experience the movie in this drive-in formula. Um, and we've been met with just some wonderful tales of experience as people actually witness and experience the movie for the first time. And I know, you know, the, the story of Fatima itself is such a moving story with such a deeply resonant message. I mean, the meaning and message of Fatima itself is so profound and deep, you know, especially for today's world. And we have this incredible story of faith, hope, and love at a much needed time. Natasha, and, uh, when so I was... Yes, we're delighted to put it into the world. When I was watching the movie, something that struck me very much, even though I've known the story of Fatima and I read a book about it some time ago, uh, and I say a daily rosary, I was watching the movie and I was struck by the sheer unlikelihood that this, um, this, these apparitions happening to these little children, I mean, the, the most insignificant of the, of the insignificant of the world, should find such a response in the hearts of not only the people of that time, but all the decades since. You know, in those days, there was no social media. There was barely telephones and telegraphs, I think, available to these people in, in the countryside of Portugal. How did it happen that it has to be, of course, the hand of God, but to watch it in action that these three little children have this experience with Our Lady and that this is translated into many, many thousands of people coming and experiencing that presence with them? You're absolutely right. Obviously, in 1917, there was nothing like social media as it is today. And, you know, it all started with little Jacinta. She was unable to keep this secret of of her experiences of, of you know, witnessing an apparition with the Blessed Mother. And she was so excited and so overwhelmed by the beauty of this lady from heaven that she couldn't contain herself and she went home in pure excitement and told her parents and this message then began to spread and I think one of the, the primary reasons that the message spread so prolifically, particularly at that time, you know, it was virulent, was you know, there was a new Republican government that had been instituted into Portugal in 1910 and, and they were set on eliminating religion within two generations. And so whilst it wasn't, you know, the, the anti-clerical movement was perhaps not as violent as it was in Spain, you know, just preceding that time, you know, there was many churches that were being closed. It was very much a secular government that was instituted. And, um, you know, there was a silencing of a religion. So there was certain, there was new parameters, that were social parameters that were set that you were not allowed to, to worship publicly. And so, you know, this is very much 
Catholicism particularly was very much the lifeblood of the majority of the population. At that time, Portugal was still very much a, a rural nation state with, you know, with metropolitan centers. And so, you know, it was really the lifeblood of its people. And so during this time, it was also World War I. Um, and so there was very much a shadow of the loss, you know, the horror of war whilst it was never fought in Portugal. There was a, you know, a generation of young men who were still conscripted and went to war. Mm-hmm. And so this, you know, Our Lady's apparitions played out during this time. Uh, also, interestingly, at the time of the, the Spanish flu. So, you know, the 1918 was when the, the flu epidemic uh, kind of ripped through Europe. So, you know, there, there was a lot of parallels to the experiences that we actually have today and um, and so this you know this this lifeblood of of the, lo- the, the local population this all of a sudden they started hearing that the Blessed Mother was appearing to these three children at this particular spot and so pilgrims literally started arriving the word spread from from people to people you know from family to family and the, the pilgrims started arriving on foot to go and experience the children experiencing these apparitions right up until October the 13th where 70,000 people arrived on foot on donkeys, the occasional motor car at that time to, because there was a promised miracle Our Lady actually promised a miracle so that all people would see and believe and so October the 13th was the date of the last apparition and word spread and this was met with you know, a barrage of people arriving to to witness and experience this miracle. And, you know, they say it was 70,000. It could have been closer to 100,000. That's how they actually assessed the number of people who congregated on this very rural landscape at that time. And as you say, without social media. So you know, there's, I think there's, there's uh, you know, this is a, there's a real profound desire in people to hear this message, this peace plan from heaven, to have the hope that, and the spiritual hope that, that there, there's a presence of heaven. Heaven proclaimed itself on that day, on October 13th, 1917. And there's thousands of eyewitness that test, what, witnesses that testify to experiencing a similar experience to each other. Um, and I think this 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 desire of the pilgrims to actually descend upon the site of the original site of the apparitions and miracle has perpetuated over the last 100 years, what's well, 103 years now, to the extent that on the you know, the anniversary celebration of the centennial of the miracle and apparitions, there was a. Uh, 9.8 million pilgrims who visited the shrine of Fatima in a six-month period. That's amazing, so, Natasha. You know, I really, it's phenomenal. It is phenomenal. And you know, this story of hope, this story of this peace plan from heaven, the meaning and message of Fatima, this story of hope has transcended and become, you know, a, a very, very apt for today and I think that's very much the world that we're now putting this movie into is is a world desperate for hope if you're just joining us, this is Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and I'm talking with Natasha Howe, the producer of the movie Fatima. Natasha, one thing that I really loved about the movie was the way it humanized um, Jacinta and Lu- Lucia and um, and her brother. And 
because I, you know I've seen pictures of them many times and they don't smile for the pictures it, they look otherworldly in a sense uh, from a different time but really they were just three little children and experiencing something tremendous and then trying to communicate it to adults who were either afraid or wanting to suppress it or simply overwhelmed by the strangeness of this experience that they were relating so I loved watching the humanity of all of that it's, you know I that's certainly a position of the film that differentiates us from possibly all of the other movies about Fatima. I was actually also the producer of The 13th Day, which was the the latest feature film that was released about Fatima in 2009. We've created this Fatima movie to really develop the human story behind the story of the apparitions and the miracle. So part of our objective and, you know, our, our desire and plan was to create a work of art through which audiences and viewers were not only making it accessible to all people, um, you know, the media message of Fatima is for all of the world. It's not just for Catholics. And so we wanted to create a film that really spoke at an emotional level and was very accessible to all people. And, you know, by actually developing, you know, we we researched each of the agents of this story very, very deeply and, and actually in communion with the Shrine of Fatima. We started working with the Shrine of Fatima very, very early on in the process who really understood what we were trying to do, which was ultimately to disseminate the meaning and message of Fatima to the wider world. And, you were also, you know, Natasha, we, you were very successful, I feel, in your portrayal of Our Lady, her face, the gentleness, the gentleness of her countenance. She had, um, she, you could almost see rays of love coming from her face <laughs> towards the children, towards oh, the people yeah. that were suffering. That was amazing. You did such a great job there. Thank you. And again, it was, it was humanizing the Blessed Mother. Mm-hmm. So we decided to, rather than to represent the Blessed Mother as you know, a floating spirit necessarily, which is how she's actually described. She appears, Sister Lucia described her as appearing, you know, over, hovering over a home oak bush. And actually we, we decided that we also wanted to create a complete, you know, a character that could be, that is thoroughly identifiable. So not only a woman of extreme natural beauty, but whose you know, grace of maternal love can be profoundly felt and also profoundly felt by the viewers and by the audience. So yes, literally, I mean, Joana Ribeiro, which is the, the Portuguese actress that we cast in the role of, of the Blessed Mother, not only is just she, she exhibits a, an earthly but also an ethereal beauty but she she was able to be the conduit of this intense love and she showed that to the children and we as the viewers who identify particularly with Lucia feel that too so thank you for recognizing that quality that, that we really tried so hard to create it's really stayed with me I have to tell you Natasha and also with my children they who watched it they've they've mentioned to me a couple times how sometimes when they pray now they they imagine her face for our ladies because she really did have a maternal loveliness that maybe that's so beautiful mm-hmm. that's wonderful thank you I, you know I think that was part of the the other impulse was to actually we, we, we cast quite deeply from the Portuguese community you know the the Portuguese community themselves you know this is the Fatima story is inherent 
to their heritage and they're part of their own lifeblood too. And so we, we wanted to ensure that the Blessed Mother actually appeared to these port, you know, children in Portugal who actually they would recognize her instantaneously. And she, she is very Portuguese in, mm-hmm. in her looks and in her demeanor. And so, yes, it, and that's so fantastic that your children actually imagine the Blessed Mother as Joana Ribeiro. That's just beautiful. Thank you so much. And I think also had a lot to do with the way she was represented in terms of things like the costume design. We actually worked with an Academy Award winning costume designer from Italy who put deep, deep research and inspiration into the characterization of the Blessed Mother. Uh, as I said, she appears as a real woman and she may seem other timely or otherworldly but because of her garb and the way that she is dressed and the way she presents herself. Um, but she really does, you know, she, she's so gentle and so beautiful. And I think particularly in the scene where we also witness and experience as the viewers her bleeding heart, it's just so profoundly impactful. Mm-hmm. You actually feel that through her expression. You know, the the fact that the children, or maybe it was just Lucia, was granted a vision of hell. I've read that many times, Mm -hmm. but watching it in the movie made a great uh, impression on me. Because hell is sometimes a word that we use rather freely, but it is a place Mm -hmm. of complete desolation and fear and and loneliness and separation from God. And and I really felt that that vision being granted to her was a great burden that she was asked to bear. And for our our sake, Mm -hmm. so that she could communicate the urgency of the message of peace of Our Lady. Correct, yes. Well, and it was, obviously the, the vision of hell was bestowed to both Jacinta Francisco and to Lucia and it, you know, it changed them forever. Mm-hmm. So within the actual story of Fatima from a, a deep, deeply cognitive level, you know, that third apparition, the July apparition where they were bestowed, the secret of Fatima told in three parts, that vision of hell is what changed and particularly Jacinta center the most by which it was at that point that they really truly understood the level of suffering that that, that god willed upon them to, to for sinners to save the souls of sinners and it was at that point particularly jacinta that well you can actually see it in photographic imagery at the time their faces their demeanors changed and it became much much more urgent for them to actually pray pray the rosary pray the rosary very much pray every day sacrifice themselves for sinners and literally every breathing moment of little jacinta's life became a sacrifice for her to actually offer that for the for the saving of of sinners souls right up until the point of her death she was still praying and offering herself for that purpose that experience of hell for them was just so profound natasha the movie is framed in such a way that we see lucia later on in life when she's already maybe in her 90s living in her convent and she's being visited by a person who wants to write about the apparition and he happens to be an atheist why did you think that that would be good to frame the story that way we have made this film with the full knowledge of everything that occurred during the time and so we literally do have you know the full cognition of the full secret of Fatima, all of the visions the revelations the interpretations and you know we really wanted to create an opportunity for Sister Lucia 
to reflect on her experiences as a child, to make sense, to cognize them in an adult way, in an adult form. Um, and so we actually chose to, you know, to create a fictional character, Professor Nichols, to come in and interview Sister Lucia, to necessarily ask her and to help her to reflect upon those experiences, but from a critical point of view, so that there's an interplay there between potentially those questions that many people have had, and be that the questions of the faithful and the not faithful, to interact with Sister Lucia to really try and understand. I mean, he actually goes in there on the pretext of understanding as to whether she's of sane mind, of sound mind. Mm to try and find out, you know, part of the trajectory of the book that he's writing, it's about this woman actually mad or not. And so, you know, he goes in there with a slightly different sensibility to the one that he leaves with after actually interviewing her, which is, you know, Sister Lucia comes across as with absolute sound mind and with a real capacity to reflect and respond in a very considered and educated way. And so it was really a narrative perspective to try try and interplay with all of those questions that we have had and that have been posed very seriously to Sister Lucia throughout her life. And so that was the purpose of it. But I think it really does offer a beautiful platform to really reflect back as adults from a considered point of view on all of those experiences. And also then to play out some of the key criticisms around, you know, the believability. It's like the doubt necessarily, it's not that there's no doubt as to whether this happened or didn't happen within the movie but it really does come across as being the key dialectic through which we we then we we learn to understand and cognize this story at a much deeper level i suppose from the atheist perspective or just the disbelieving perspective the idea is that the children imagined it that there was a popular desire for hope in a time of very great need and then maybe all those 70,000 people had a joint delusion when they saw the sun dance. Mm-hmm. But you know, I want to tell you a story. Two years ago, on May 13th, it was the 100th year anniversary of the apparition. My husband and I and the children joined a rosary at noon that was being given in our local public park. We stood in the center of the town and there were maybe 100 people and we said the rosary. And it started at noon. But wait, it gets better. So it started at noon and around 12.05, somebody said, look up. And we all looked up at the sun and there was a rainbow halo around the sun. And it was, it's something that's a very rare thing that happens. It does happen. It's called a halo. Mm -hmm. It looked looked like a perfect rainbow that had done a complete circle around the sun. I have pictures of it. Everyone saw it. We could all see it. Of course, for us, it was a manifestation of Our Lady's presence for us in our rosary as as we acknowledge the anniversary of Fatima. But I just wanted you to know that story because I know that you not only made the movie of Fatima, but you're also a person who lives it and breathes it and and it's, it's very important to you yes oh very much so and well actually my birthday is also May the 13th really so I'm actually born on the feast day of our lady <laughs> I am yeah this very interestingly this experience that you that you've mentioned I would love to see those photos please send them to me I've had the same experience I've often been in Fatima for the feast day celebration I was shooting the the 13th day just outside of Fatima way back in 2006 and then obviously with this Fatima movie we were there it was actually October we were there filming 
filming during the May, May celebrations too. And what you described is what I've also experienced on those May 13th days. So yes, to, I will also suggest that that's a, a manifestation. Thank you for sharing that. And you know, it's so interesting because mm. the people, those of us who were there, we were so moved and overcome by it. But when we try to communicate it to others, it lost its luster. And I was very sorry for them because yeah. I feel that our hearts have to be opened all the time to receive these messages of God's love and of Our Lady's love. And so easy to just be looking down at the floor and not looking up at the sun for for confirmation Absolutely. of how, how important. And we are exactly, to and to experience, acknowledge, and recognize the wonder that is God that does manifest Himself through experience those kind of visual experiences. And you know, like I say, stop looking down at the ground and start looking up at the mm-hmm. wonder of the world because truly, when you experience and see that, and people are there are doubters everywhere. And as soon as you actually reflect that kind of story to somebody who wasn't there to experience and witness it, as you say, it loses its love. And I think there's, you know, this is surely where faith begins. This is where, you know, this is the hope that we have as people of faith to actually experience and witness the miracle that is, you know, the miracles that are around us. Thank you. I think that's just such a beautiful, for sharing that beautiful story. I think that's wonderful. Natasha, it's a, it's a really wonderful movie, I have to say. It's beautifully acted. Lucia is the most charming little girl you can imagine. And also at the same time is able as an actress to reflect a real uh, interior life, which I think is very difficult for an act, for a child actor or actress. And uh, it was a wonderful movie. I'm so glad I took my children. I'm going to tweet on my Twitter. I'm going to put a picture of the little girls that we brought sitting on the top of our minivan. They just I've weren't... seen those photos. Oh, have They're you? Fantastic. <laughs> I have, yes. That's so wonderful. I didn't know they were, they were your. They belong to you. That's just wonderful. Thank you. That's Yes, we've been just having these most amazing experiences. And I just want to add, obviously having Andrea Bocelli sing the original song, perform the original yes. song. He himself has a very, very deep devotion to Our Lady. Um, and he too visited Fatima in 2018. And, uh, you know, we have been so incredibly blessed to bring together some of the world's most renowned and most incredibly talented stars and actors. And it's, we, it, we've created a work of art and we're so pleased that the world is actually getting to experience this now. And it is fully, it's an homage to Fatima. It's fully in honor of Our Lady. And, you know, we truly hope audiences will, if not flock to the theater, because if that's their preferred method, actually, you know, do, you can rent it at home. We listen to everybody. You can rent it at home now too through premium VOD on August the 28th. Go to FatimaTheMovie.com and thank you so much, Natasha, for joining us. It was a true pleasure. The pleasure's all mine. Thank you so much. Next, we are happy to have Father David Guffey, National Director of Family Theatre Productions here. He's the executive producer of Pray, the story of Patrick Payton. That is a documentary becoming available early October. Stay tuned right here on EWTN Radio. We'll be right back. Welcome back 
to Conversations with Consequences. We are very happy to follow up on our talk with Natasha House on Fatima the Movie with Father David Guffey, National Director of Family Theater Productions here. He's the executive producer of Pray, the story of Patrick Payton. That is a documentary becoming available early October. Welcome to the show, Father Guffey. Thank you so much, Gracie. Today, in preparation for um, talking to you about the, your movie called Pray, I went online and I looked up uh, Father Peyton and his life, and I was so impressed. And I'm so glad that you have made this documentary about his life, which is called Pray. So can you give us, uh, give us a short biographical sketch of Father Peyton and why you were inspired to do this documentary? Sure. Father Patrick Payton was uh, born in Ireland uh, to a very poor family. Uh, he immigrated to the United States when he was uh, in his early 20s, hoping to become a millionaire, and instead he discovered his vocation to priesthood. Uh, he joined the seminary with the Congregation of Holy Cross, went to seminary at Notre Dame and then to Washington, D.C., and late in his seminary years, he was diagnosed with tuberculosis, a very severe case of tuberculosis. He was really on his deathbed when a priest, a Holy Cross priest, visited him and encouraged him to go all in with his prayer to the Blessed Mother, asking for his her intercession for healing. And he did, and the healing came almost immediately. I was so grateful for that healing. Uh, he was ordained with his, coincidentally with his brother Tom in 1939. And in 1941, he had his first assignment and he wanted to repay the Blessed Mother. And he didn't want to just do it through a life of devotion. He really wanted to give to her. He saw what was going on in the world. At that time, World War II was just beginning and the United, and the United States was being drawn into it. He knew that families would be separated. He knew that there were distresses on the family. He saw it already. And he prayed and he thought, you know, what can I do to help? And what he thought of was what he had found with his own family. His own family gathered every evening to pray the rosary. And he really believed uh, from his own experience that families praying together, especially the rosary, would help keep them together when they were face to face, but would also help them keep unified when they were separated by oceans or continents. And so he, as a very young priest, he started a national prayer campaign. He called it the Family Rosary Crusade. From that, he, he got into radio, discovering that mass media was the way to get into people's hearts and homes. That turned into film and television. He was becoming so popular that in the late 40s, 1950s, he started doing rosary rallies. And they got bigger and bigger and bigger. 500,000 people in Golden Gate Park in San Francisco, um, a million people in Rio de Janeiro, all over the world. He, he did over 500 ra rallies around the world. The last one was in Manila, and there was uh, over 2 million people at the rosary rally. That's amazing. It's an amazing well, number of people. They figure out that Father Peyton had been seen by 28 million people at live events during his lifetime because of all the rallies that he did. That's amazing. And, you know, he was a, a master of the new evangelization long before the new evangelization, it seems. Absolutely. He was, and in fact, John Paul II, every pope has mentioned his name with connection to that, with with connection to family evangelization in the domestic church. And of course, they quote Father Peyton's 
uh, famous phrase, the family that prays together stays together. Well, I've been using that phrase all my life, obviously, and I never <laughs> knew that I, that it was Father Peyton's. Some things that struck me about his biography was, um, so he came from a, he was a, came from a poor family in Ireland, a family of farmers, left school, <laughs> left school at 15. And after that, he wanted to enter the seminary in Ireland and was rejected. He didn't have, it, they said to him, the right intellectual qualifications or preparation to enter the seminary. So he put that aside and came to America to make money and then was able to find his calling in the United States. And I thought that was so lovely, uh, such, a, such a beautiful lesson in persistence and, and listening to God's great plans for us. It's amazing, isn't it, how God pursues us? And it, part of it was when they came to the United States, they moved to Scranton. Um, and I'm talking about uh, Father Peyton and his brother Tom. They came together. But they already had a sister who lived in Scranton, and they thought that they would get jobs. And they looked and looked and looked. Tom got a job in a coal mine. Uh, Father Pat got a job, or Pat, he just Patrick at the time, got a job as the janitor at the cathedral. And so he had he had so much time to, that he spent. He talks about spending time alone before anybody else got there in the morning, and then locking up at night. And that time alone with the Lord just drew him more and more uh, into um, a, an awareness of what he was called to be. That's so lovely. I can just imagine him, no, and, and hours before <laughs> the Blessed Sacrament, and and feeling all that uh, all that closeness to the Lord. And then, uh, and then his conversion experience, well, I'm sorry, not a conversion experience, uh, really, but that experience that he had of being healed by the Virgin Mary, and one that he felt that she made very much a direct intervention in his life, that she, she made it happen that he was healed from a terrible case of tuberculosis and it did feel it i did feel it very strongly that that he wanted to communicate that sense of our lady's immediacy in our lives to every single person he could reach all across the world absolutely uh she she definitely was real for him and by the way the healing that he had baffled the doctors in fact they sort of they they his only option was a very dramatic surgery which was really risky and and really resulted in death most of the time. They'd called his family and told them they should come visit him. And that's when he, he really he really turned in prayer in a special way. And after he was healed, he had a hard time convincing the doctors. Like he had to like beg for them to do another chest x-ray and they did it. And the tuberculosis was not visible on the chest x-ray. They had no explanation for it. That's amazing. And I wonder how much, how many times that happens around us and, and we don't even know about the miracles that are happening. Absolutely. Father, another thing, um, looking over his, his biography, and I'm so, I'm really excited to watch the movie Pray, the documentary, because this part's going to be so interesting to so many people. When he went out into radio and then TV, he was accompanied by some of the biggest stars in Hollywood who, who signed on to his <laughs> mission and participated with him. And on the one hand, it was very, it's very exciting to read about and, and see all these people that I didn't even know would have cared to help this kind of mission, this beautiful spiritual mission. And on the other hand, I felt a little sad because it reminds me of how badly our culture has degenerated since those days in the in the 40s and 50s, uh, and and how maybe Father Peyton couldn't find that kind of welcome in Hollywood. Yeah, it was a wonderful time when he was there. The Hollywood community welcomed him. He made connections at a few of the parishes in Los Angeles that were in areas where celebrities lived, and they were very anxious 
anxious to work for him. And at that time, you know, it was good for their career to assist Father Peyton. So it wasn't a risk for them to do that necessarily. Wow, I, in that Hollywood, has changed. Oh, yeah. And in my experience in Hollywood, I find a lot of people of faith mm-hmm. in all levels of the industry and people who would truly love to be making quality, values-driven films that they could share with their families, that they could be proud of uh, to show with their faith communities. And the good news is, is more of those things are getting made. Mm-hmm. There's more faith-based stuff being made now than there was 20 years ago by far. So there are some more opportunities. The tr- the hard thing is, is anybody who gets involved with a faith-based project, there's a bit of a risk to their secular career, not necessarily from audiences, because I think audiences are more faithful than the marketers in Hollywood give them credit for. But the risk is with how they're perceived by the the people who, who make and promote and do other things. There are still people willing to do it, but certainly not in the numbers that there were when Father Peyton was in Hollywood in the 1940s and 50s. It says something, doesn't it, about uh, how the the people who are making our culture for us aren't really responsive. Forget our needs. They're not even responsive really to our desires because you do, it's true, um, the American public receives many uh, many uh, family-based or family-friendly and faith-based films very enthusiastically. Well, and let me, I think the good news is that is in some ways they are. I, I think there's some people in Hollywood that are definitely opposed to the values of our faith, but there's a lot of people in Hollywood that are business people. Mm-hmm. And the more that we can show them that there's an audience for this kind of content, for faith-based and family content, the more they'll make it. And that's been proven over the last couple of years. And so, and, and that, I, I, it's a, why it's exciting to bring Pray the Story of Father Patrick Payton, our documentary to theaters now. It's an iffy time for theaters. We know that. And uh, theaters aren't open everywhere in the country. Even hopefully they will be by October 9th when it's released. But let me tell you, when we, when we took this, this film to theater chains, we thought we were going to have a hard time selling it to them. But they were they were very excited for the content, and really? so yeah, and which was a good sign because, and I don't know that necessarily means they're people of faith, but I think they're people who know their audience, hmm. and I think there's an audience that's hungry for hopeful, faithful content. So, Father, tell us about the documentary. Telling, tell us how 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 you got it made, and and tell us um, tell us about the film itself. Sure, pray the story of Patrick Payton is a, um, a documentary. It's about seventy minutes long. When I I first started working at Family Theater Productions, which is the media company that Father Payton founded, I started working for Family Theater about two thousand eight. And when I came to the company, we had a whole vault full of video and film and audio tapes and audio recordings. A lot of it were shows that were already on the air uh, that you could see on EWTN or you could buy on DVD. But there was so much there that had never been seen. There footage from rallies, footage from newsreels, footage from interviews that he had done and that had never been broadcast. So we started to digitize those. And what we realized is that you know the mess, what he was saying has so much import for our families today. So we wanted to tell the story of Father Patrick Payton, not just to tell his story, but also to show how his message that family, the family that prays together stays together still is meaningful. So along with telling the story of Father Patrick Payton in a really compelling way, beautiful footage, footage that very few people have ever seen up to now, uh, some original reenactments. We went to Ireland. We shot in several places in the United States. So in addition to telling the story of Father Patrick Payton, we also 
interweave that with stories of families who either interacted with Father Peyton or young families who've taken his message of family prayer to heart and are incorporating it into their family lives and their homes today. So it's a beautiful combination of the past, but also it's an inspirational charge and, and challenge for the future. And his message of praying together as a family is more needed than ever. And, and I think you're right. I think that it, it does resonate for families are not finding that unity in the family is supported by a lot of the of modern culture, right? And they, they have to find um, resources like praying together. It is. And, you know, we did a study of our, our parent organization that Father Peyton founded, Holy Cross Family Ministries. We did a study in 2015, and we asked families about their spiritual life. We asked families about their media consumption. The good news is we found that most Catholic parents pray and they, and as a part of their regular life. But what we found in that that was disturbing is they don't pray together. Hmm. So hus husbands are not praying with wives. Parents are not praying with children. And so, and we ask, and in the survey, we ask if they didn't, why not? And some, they didn't know how, they didn't have, you know, they didn't, were never taught, they didn't have any modeling. Some thought it would be uncomfortable. Uh, they didn't know how to get started or they were worried that um, their family wouldn't want to do it. Well, we've tried to, what we've tried to do as family theaters, provide some resources for people to give it a shot. To mo so the part of what the film does is it models families who tried it and had beautiful results. And that we try to do that through other resources that we provide through our sister organization, Family, family Rosary, our, our sister organization, CatholicMom.com, and other things. But Pray the Movie especially tries to give a couple of models of how family prayer can take place and what it can do for a family. You must also be hoping that the documentary moves forward his cause for beatification? We do. I mean, that's a, the secondary cause. I don't know that Father Peyton would want us to focus too much on that, but we think it will. Uh, he's venerable right now. His case is before the Congregation of Saints. We've had so many people write to us with stories about um, how they've felt comforted or even healed by Father Peyton. All those are being in the works of being investigated by the church. But the biggest thing that we want is for Father Peyton's message to get out. And so with the film, we're launching a, a Pray Together Now uh, movement. And what that is, is we want families to pledge that they will, they will give family prayer a try that they will try family prayer in their own home. So if people go to the website uh, for the movie, praythefilm.com, you'll see the button there for the Pray Together Now movement. And we hope that people who see the film will be inspired to make this commitment and really give it a shot in their own home. You know, my experience has been that uh, children, far from rejecting prayer with their parents and with their whole family, they thrive on it. I've seen children presented with the opportunity for the first time, like really take it to heart and enjoy it very much and look forward to it. I, that's my experience too. And in fact, one of, I talked with a woman the other day, she had seen the film. She's a, a, a media person and she had gotten a pre-screener and she said that she, you know, they'd pray grace at meals and other things, so it wasn't entirely new. But she sat with her teenage daughters and prayed a decade of the rosary, which led to a conversation. And then she said that they sat and talked the whole evening without turning on television or other things. So she said right away there was, in her family, you know, it bore fruit. 
but and uh, but it took a risk you know she didn't know that would happen and you know it might not happen for everyone but what the heck there's so many families they could and it will no, you're right. What the heck? There's so much, so much good to be had if, only, if we make the attempt. My, my, this is this is a private, a private uh, anecdote. But my husband and I recently in our marriage, uh, we've been married 26 years. Recently in our marriage, we've we've been praying the rosary together, and sometimes uh, after an argument or an altercation where we we've disagreed strenuously with each other and we find it so unifying and and it puts it puts us right back on the road to 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 good uh, to good relations and to to happiness in our home beautiful that's a something something I would recommend to any couple. I, and you know, being part of a married couple, Father, you don't know this, but it's very complicated. <laughs> I know it from my religious community, and I know that um, living with living in a house or in a community with with other people is not easy. And unless you have something that gets you out of yourself, people out of themselves, and reminds them what they have in common, and I, I even experienced that in religious communities, and I did experience it in my own family too. Sure. And what can be more uh, about getting out of yourself and reminding and remembering what you have in common than praying, especially the rosary, I find. Yes. So, Father, you mentioned that you were with Family the You've been with Family Theater Productions since 2008. Tell us about mm -hmm. tell us about uh, Family Theater Productions. Family Theater Productions was founded in 1947 by Father Peyton. We started with a radio show and you've referenced that. That's the show where we engaged Hollywood celebrities. Uh, to do, it was a weekly radio play. So each each show was a new play, and each show had a celebrity, and um, and that was on the air from 1947 to 1968 on the Mutual Network. Father Peyton then got into film and television, and uh, it's morphed through the years. Recently, we've been doing uh, short format videos. We have a couple of internet series, and then we've been doing some feature work. We were involved with the Dating Project. I don't know if you saw that film that explores yes, how people I did. begin. Yeah, that we were we partnered with that. Um, so, and what we're trying to do now with our feature films is create films that families can watch together, and that support the the values of family and uh, family and faith life. Oh, wonderful. And you expect, um, so this is a huge project for, for your, for family theater productions. Would you say this is your biggest project that you made or, or not? Certainly the biggest we've done in a long time. And, um, and it, hopefully it's the first of many to come. Well, I, just from reading the story of uh, Father Peyton's life and hearing your description, I'm, I'm very sure it's going to be wonderful to watch. I'm, I'll make sure that I, I, I send everyone to it or bring them if I'm able to. I'm, I miss going to theaters. I hope, I hope for the sake of your company, the documentary, and the whole world that people are able to watch it in theaters. That's my hope, too. And I know that it's a little bit risky, and I know there's some, some theaters that are just opening, but we thought, and when we prayed about it, we thought, wouldn't it be great if this is the first film that people see when they go back to theaters, or at least they had the choice to see a film like this. So we're hoping other people feel like you do. I think people will. I think people are not only excited to get back to regular life within, you know, with, within safe mm -hmm. limits, but also... To, to go back into real life with, uh, about the things that matter, like prayer and our faith. Absolutely. So, Father, thank you so much for making this film. I'm very excited <laughs> to see it. I hope that all our listeners will also be watching it. Where can they learn more about, um, your, uh, about Father Peyton, your project, and also pray? 
Thank you so much for having me. And for all the information, you can go to praythefilm.com. It's the website for the film, praythefilm.com. And it has links to resources about Father Peyton. It has resources for families and parishes if they want to do a parish night. And it also has how you can see the film. Wonderful. And I'll remind our listeners that it'll be in theaters and available beginning early next month, October 9th. Thank you, Father Guffey. Thank you. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a privilege for me to be with you as we enter into the consequential conversation the risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us this Sunday. Jesus gives us another parable, popularly called the parable of the two sons. As he did last week, he employs the image of working in a vineyard. Seven days ago, he spoke to us about his calling all hands on deck, going out at 6 and 9 a.m., noon, 3 and 5 p.m. to call laborers into his vineyard because he wants all of us working. He wants all of us growing by participating in his divine harvest of souls. This time, he focuses on two brothers called by their father to work in the family vineyard. The first son initially refuses when his father tells him, son, go out and work in my vineyard today. But afterward, he changes his mind and goes to work. After the parable, Jesus implies that this is the proper way to understand those prostitutes and tax collectors and other types of sinners, who even though for lengthy periods of time had said no to the sixth, seventh, and other commandments, eventually converted and were now living and working the Lord's vineyard, building up and entering into his kingdom. The second son responds to his father's command, saying respectfully, Sir, I will go, but never acts on that promise. She says this applies precisely to those whom he was addressing, the scribes and the Pharisees, who so many times very publicly prayed in the temple, chanting aloud their amens to God, but who were not following through on their covenantal commitments. The Pharisees, scribes, and elders who with their lips were saying yes to the Father's will, but with their actions were not, ended up showing where this hypocrisy can lead. They ended up framing Jesus and having him tortured, crucified, and killed. It's obvious that the Lord wants all of us today to reflect not only on what we say to God, but especially on how we follow through on our commitments to God. We're listening to this program dedicated to growing in faith because we're people who have said yes to God many times over the course of our life. On the day of our baptism, our parents and godparents spoke up for us and made our baptismal promises. At our confirmation, we stood up and renewed those promises. What promises? To reject Satan, his evil works, and empty promises, and to believe in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sin, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. We also made the commitment at our confirmation to go out to work in the Lord's vineyard with tongues of fire, to proclaim the Lord's gospel with ardent passion. The Lord wants us to ask ourselves whether we've been following through on these commitments and been getting down to work in his vineyard. If we haven't been following through, if we have been saying no to the Lord with our bodies, despite the yes of our lips, then he wants to help us to learn from the example of the first son. It's not fundamentally words that matter, but deeds of conversion and faith. For many of us sons and daughters of God, our yes in faith has become routine. 
say it so naturally and quickly that we've ceased to understand the meaning of what we're saying yes to and act on that commitment. Every week, for example, we say amen to the words, the body of Christ, but do we really structure our lives in a way consistent with this affirmation? Say thanks be to God when the word of God is proclaimed at Mass. But do we show gratitude for this incredible gift by making time each day to meditate on what God is saying to us and applying it to our life? We affirm, I believe in one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but do we still believe when God asks us to do something challenging, like hard work in his vineyard? Or does our faith dissipate when God asks of us something that we don't want to do? We confess our faith in the one holy Catholic and apostolic church, but do we look at the church as just one other organization to which we belong, or rather as the bride and the body of Christ that he set up for our salvation, and for the salvation of our family members, friends, enemies, and the whole world? It's clear that God's seeking to move us today to let our hearts be touched by faith, so that we may go beyond words and make our life an amen, a thy will be done, a let it be done to me according to your word. To learn how to do this, we need to grasp that there's a third son whose example is set before us in the gospel scene. Someone who both says yes and then does what's asked. It's the son who tells us the parable, Jesus himself. As we read in the letter of the Hebrews, upon entering into the world, Jesus said to his father, Here I am, Lord, I've come to do your will. Jesus never had to change his mind as the first son did in the parable because his mind was always seeking what the father willed. The more we think with the mind of Christ and live according to that mentality with the help of God's grace, the more we will please the Father. In response to Jesus' question in the Gospel, which did the will of his Father, we're called to respond that Jesus did the will of the Father. And today, Jesus calls us to follow him in doing that will. He calls us to say yes to the Father as an echo of his own. The Eucharist, which we are so mind-blowingly privileged to receive, Help us to enter into a holy communion with Jesus as he says yes to the Father's will. Jesus had prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane that the Father would take the chalice away from him, but then added three times, but not my will, but thine be done. That chalice was the cup of his suffering filled with his own blood. When Jesus told us during the Last Supper to do this in memory of me, he was not merely telling us to convene to celebrate this greatest event of all. He's telling us to make our lives truly Eucharistic and following his example, become obedient even to our own death, saying to God and to others, this is my body, this is my blood, this is everything I am and have, this is my will given for you. May this third son, this faithful son, whom we will receive at Mass, help us not merely to enunciate amen, but to follow through on that mission he out of love has entrusted to each of us and all of us so that not merely by our lips, but by our life, we might help each other to become living commentaries on the words, fiat voluntas tua, thy will be done, as we respond to God's call, son, daughter, go work in my vineyard today. God bless you all. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com. And you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy. And you go with our prayers. 